everyone, and welcome to this episode of Getting to Better Together, our podcast mini-series sponsored by the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership, SIDSL, as we call ourselves, of the University of the Sunshine Coast, and supported by Noosa FM Radio 101.3. Before proceeding, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gubby Gubby people, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. One of the great privileges, in addition to the sheer pleasures that we have at Sidsel in working in international development, is the opportunity to directly share experiences, knowledge and practices with colleagues from other countries in the region, with mutual learning as the essential purpose and hopefully the useful outcome. With a number of such co-learning projects on the go at the moment, we're currently interacting with colleagues from PNG, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, the Maldives, Nepal and Vietnam. In this manner, within the context of getting to better together, we actually are practicing what we preach in a way that embraces and illustrates diversity and cooperation as keys to a unity of action for betterment. The international delegates that join us in these workshops, site visits, presentations and discussions in the short courses that we conduct on a regular basis expose us to both the challenges that they face within their own respective nations as well as their responses to them, and we in turn share ours with them. Such is the centrepiece of social learning and international collaboration. My guest today is one such international colleague and co-learner, and indeed a actually host of another podcast in his own country, and I'm delighted that he's accepted my invitation to join our ongoing podcast conversation for this episode. Sumitra Niopani is from Nepal and is a participant in the Sitsil co-learning project focusing on infrastructure development. He is a political economist, specialising in policies, institutions and markets of water and energy resources. For the past decade, he's been engaged in several research and reform initiatives in Nepal's water, energy, agriculture and infrastructure sectors. At present, he serves as the Executive Director at Policy Entrepreneurs Incorporated and is leading PEI's strategic initiative on infrastructure diplomacy. Welcome, Sumitra. Thank you, Richard. Your country, with its population of some 30 million or so, on a land area roughly equivalent to half the state of Victoria, is not without its challenging issues, is it not? To cite a recent report, it's a country which is highly prone to a range of multiple hazards including frequent earthquakes, floods, landslides, debris flows, droughts, thunderbolts, heat waves, cold waves, avalanches, hailstorm, snowstorm and windstorm. And that's to say nothing of the social, political, economic, cultural and technological challenges of a country that is jammed between two giants of India and China. So as a strategist and a policy advisor, where do you start in the face of such complexity? That's quite a list of complexities <laughs> to be working with initially. But uh, these are genuine complexities. Um, uh, we as Nepali or uh, Nepal in general uh, is faced with mm -hmm. um, having two large economies. Uh, I think that's a good starting point. Um, but therein also lies significant opportunities. So for us, I think moving forward, uh, the challenge has been uh, to recognize uh, the opportunities that um, emerge from the changing global context mm -hmm. and changing economies, specifically 
around how China and India are growing in the neighborhood, the fact that they are projected to be uh, significantly large economies moving forward, that presents significant opportunities for us as well, um, being in between. But also, as you rightly pointed out, um, thinking through our own development trajectory and recognizing that what we want to do and where we want to be in years to come is faced with multiple challenges, most uh, prominently around climate change and the fragilities uh, that are implied with climate change. Because as you might know, um, we, we have large, uh, very tall mountains and mountains occupy a, a significant space in the Nepali territory. And then um, there are a lot of hills, but these are young ones. Mm -hmm. So as we look at how we want to build our infrastructure, build our economy, it has become imperative for us to look at how we want to address climate change mm -hmm. in our own growth and development opportunities moving forward. Is there clear evidence that the climate is having an impact already, or the changing climate is having an impact? Well, definitely. I mean, uh, to the level that uh, uh, this winter, so it's uh, winter back home uh, or coming to a close, mm -hmm. we hardly received any rain. Really? And that's, uh, in my lifetime, um, I'm not that old, but uh, even in my lifetime, this is the first time that I've not seen a winter rain. Wow. Um, and Is this monsoonal? Uh, no, this is, uh, we have a monsoon that is uh, quite erratic or it is becoming more erratic. Okay. But the winter rain plays an important part uh, for productivity uh, mm -hmm. uh, because of uh, winter crops growing. Right. But uh, the challenges that never, uh, never ever we had to face uh, in our lifetime. I live in the uh, hills where it's a watershed. Uh -huh. uh, it's a significant watershed for the entire Kathmandu Valley, the capital. Right. And this time around, there's been no water, no water supply. Wow. So grappling with these changes, and if you kind of extrapolate that to what you see at the macroeconomic level, for example, with hydropower. So this is, um, we have a lot of water, supposedly, but um, that lot of water is being translated to uh, um, uh, periodic events of floods and droughts. Mm. So one would say Nepal has a lot of water when, when that water is available, it is either floods, too much water, or too less water when, when there is winter time. So there are certain nuances that are really emerging uh, around climate and its implication on our uh, economic growth. There's presumably a lot of snow melt given the Himalayas behind you. Uh, there is, but uh, the evidence is quite early and scanty, I would say. Uh, for example, there is this, uh, if I can quote, there's a big World Bank study that was done and that is reporting that there's going to be more water available. And then uh, power producers and developers in the country are kind of celebrating, saying that, oh, there is going to be no impact from climate change. Right. But the fact that they're not recognizing that uh, it is going to add more concerns around disaster resilience of yeah. infrastructure. Right. So uh, I think uh, uh, the policy advice there is that we've been picking up problems, uh, but at piecemeal basis. Okay. But I don't think we are kind of bringing all of that together and thinking how a larger Im implication can be drawn from these small nuances or evidences that we are picking up across different sectors. Mm. Most of us think of Nepal really as just a set of mountains, but that's not so, is it? There's some plains that well, produce uh, agricultural produce? Of course. Uh, there are three prominent geographies in Nepal, uh, one being mountains. And um, 
uh, I was talking to somebody here in Australia about uh, the nuances of what people call mountains and yes. <laughs> <laughs> what we call mountains back right. back at home. So right. for us, mountains is something that has snow cover and has no tree line. Okay. Uh, that's like a definitive understanding that so everybody there has. There and up. Yeah, there and up is mountains. So, <laughs> right. um, and then you have the hills. Um, so mountains, we don't have a lot of habitation. So uh, sporadic settlements around key tourist areas or uh, okay. generational areas. Right. Um, uh, hills traditionally had a lot of pop population, but that is being emptied, emptied out. Mm -hmm. um, so we have slowly kind of um, the hills the challenges of fragility, having to walk uh, an hour to reach mm. schools, drinking mm. water, mm. and it's difficult to build roads and accessibility. So you see a, a, a movement around internal migration that is coming to the plains. So plains traditionally um, have been the breadbasket. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't have a lot of territory, but still this is the territory that is adjoining India on the south southern end. So there is some agriculture and production and uh, some quite larger cities also in the plains. Mm -hmm. yeah, I read a staggering um, statistic for, for me the other day when I realized that the entire length of your country is between Sydney and Melbourne, 800 <laughs> kilometers. <laughs> well, there is a there is a different perspective of, of that length. Uh, and then some of us um, uh, would like to sometimes joke that if you were to flatten the mountains, that, that length is going to be actually <laughs> um, pretty long. But yeah, we are, we are a small country and then um, it comes with its own set of benefits um, and its own set of challenges. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, it's for us, it's recognizing what we can do. Well, we've been, uh, I think, very blessed by the fact that we've been endowed uh, with a great amount of natural resources. Mm -hmm. um, the Himalayas being one, water resources, um, even within that small territory, a uh, lot of cultural diversity, um, but um, not being able to manage one uh, these resources is, is a concern though. To go back to my opening question, in terms of policy, to what extent is the government on top of it, as it were? Well, that's the unfortunate side of um, uh, of what has happened. Uh, I think beyond the aspirations and uh, positive developments that have happened mm -hmm. in the country, uh, the politics has remained the most unsettling part. Okay. Uh, so uh, I think a lot of people might know this about Nepal, but if, if they don't, uh, we went, uh, there was a decade-long internal armed conflict in the country. Right. Um, and then the politics then slowly emerged uh, to now Nepal changing the constitution back in 2015, adopting new forms of uh, governance, including uh, doing away with monarchy and being a federal democratic republic. Mm. So major transitions. Right. Um, but the expectation was that these transitions would, would give some momentum to uh, some positive thinking and progress. But it's been quite unsettling even post-2015. Uh, and if you are to take into perspective uh, the period of political instability in Nepal, it stretches from 1995 to probably today um, uh, in the fact that um, uh, the prime minister is still today at this moment in time. Uh, the politics is still unsettled in Nepal. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of that momentum, uh, political momentum, while could have gone for constructive thinking, uh, it's being still 
driven towards uh, face saving and then uh, fetching and building alliances to to come in power and stay right. in power right so does this really mean that policies aren't formulated or that they are formulated but they're not put into practice well both okay um, both in the sense that uh, the focus uh, for example the parliament uh, has been around who's going to be in government who's going to stay there uh, and then they've not quite acted on um, the policies that are required or necessary for the country to move forward. Mm -hmm. um, not discounting the fact that there's not been any progress. There's been some progress across different fields, but that momentum isn't there. So right. uh, at least uh, as a Nepali, you would expect um, that uh, we've, we've gone through some significant challenges in this last 10 20 years mm -hmm. so to have some sense of stability beginning with redefining of uh, the the contract between the state uh, which is the uh, constitution mm -hmm. you would expect that that would translate to some positive thinking and momentum but right. that's been unfortunate around mm -hmm. nepal's mm -hmm. recent story your uh, your own position is that uh, a corporation it's a, it's a it's a think tank. We don't have uh, okay. a separate registration for um, uh, uh, research institutions. So mm -hmm. either you can be um, a private entity mm -hmm. or you can be a non-profit entity. Right. Okay. Um, um, the non-profit entity would largely kind of uh, um, be regulated by a regulatory scope that uh, works around uh, NGOs uh, and service delivery institutions. Right. Um, academic and research and evidence-based institutions uh, necessarily we don't have that culture yet in okay. Nepal. Uh, so this is right. something very new mm. uh, that Nepali institutions uh, starting to think about local problems, trying to find local solutions. Uh, that's quite new. Mm. in the Nepali landscape. Mm. So as as with uh, that body of institutions moving forward, growing, uh, we are looking and exploring how we can best engage with the government to seek a separate registration. But uh, as things stand, um, um, the institution that I work in is still uh, is under private registration. Okay, right. And is the government open to to the sorts of initiatives that you are now involved in, or they really prefer not to know? Well, prefer not to know uh, <laughs> is the easier answer. Right. And um, some of the challenges um, uh, is is around, again, uh, the regulatory scope. And I, want, I don't want to be too harsh on, on right. my government, no. but the fact that it was our decision to go private was because uh, they just don't poke their nose around too much mm. when you register private. Mm. Um, otherwise, uh, see, it doesn't make sense for, for a research institution to go and seek uh, government approval for every research you want to do. Surely not, no. So if you are under the non-profit uh, registration, that is a fair, fairly regulated scope mm -hmm. uh, for mm -hmm. institutions. For, for each and every penny you would want to spend, research or engagement otherwise, you would have to seek approval and set aside some funds for the government to be part of that system yeah. monitoring or yeah. it doesn't make sense if you're just doing a small survey no. or doing some small studies mm. so uh, that was a convenient registration for us so we went there are you attractive to international donors do people come and say we would really like to fund you 
Yeah, we, we do receive uh, funds. And in fact, um, most of our collaborators are uh, the development partners. Mm -hmm. um, so we work with a host of development partners in Nepal, right. including um, uh, the US government, uh, the British Embassy, um, the World Bank, and others. Mm. So uh, mm. I would say most of our funding comes from development partners, but we do also raise uh, co funds competitively. So um, we've received funds from uh, institutions like IDRC through a global competitive bidding, mm -hmm. uh, but purely on scientific and uh, scientific research purposes. Right. right. Uh, and we mentioned the two big giants on, uh, on either side of you, as it were, although India's on three sides, as I recall. And they have very, very advanced um, institutions, um, both of them. In the, the, uh, I've been involved in universities in India for a long time, and um, they really are very sophisticated institutions, many of them. And whilst I've only briefly been to China, I've also noticed the same thing, thing there. So is there an attraction for the Nepalese to go and study in India or China? Um, actually, it's a... It's an interesting observation that you make. It's partly related to a study we are currently doing on uh, use of uh, soft power by India and China oh, okay. on the right. education sector. Right. <laughs> um, a uh, situation with which we are quite familiar, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this, uh, both countries have long invested and uh, attracted students from Nepal. Mm -hmm. um, for diplomatic reasons or non-diplomatic reasons. Uh, India, the fact that it was just convenient uh, and it was next door and then right. higher, had higher capability and advanced degrees mm -hmm. uh, at one point in time they were, uh, that weren't available in Nepal. For example, if you were to take uh, a cohort of engineers um, uh, in Nepal, a significant number of them were trained and educated in India. Okay. Um, so a lot of engineering support came from there. Mm. Uh, but there are other degrees in um, uh, universities that people apply to. Increasingly, um, uh, China, I think there is a growing preference for students to go to also China. Mm -hmm. um, there are some barriers around language. Yeah. Um, but uh, the fact that they also have uh, language programs that kind of bridge mm. uh, degree courses. Mm. So there is that attraction as well. So you see students um, going to both countries. Well, actually, the biggest charm is for students to come here to Australia. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they come in hordes. Uh, there's a yes. significant uh, Nepali population and mm. student uh, movement from Nepal to Australia. Mm. Mm. Uh, that that kind of also reflects uh, how uh, the youth um, and the working group in Nepal looks at uh, opportunities back back home. Uh, fact mm. that. Mm. These opportunities are not there or have not been able to create it or people cannot see through these uh, is, oh. is driving uh, out migration uh, at large. Is there a sense or do you have a sense that there's an enormous uh, unbound energy in, in the youth? Is there a major shift in, in generations, do you think? Um, increasingly so. Um, uh, the, the distrust most important of all is the distrust that uh, the younger generations have on the Nepali state. Right. Um, the fact that, uh, and and the saddest part as a Nepali that I see this is that all of that angst is is being translated to people giving up that mm. this system cannot change. Oh. And then it's just easier to just leave the country mm. 
and go go make opportunities somewhere mm. else. Mm. So unfor- that is the most unfortunate part of, yeah. of uh, my own observation of mm. uh, Nepali youth. Mm. And you're committed to staying? Well, I'm committed to staying. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a, I'm a political economist. I uh, <laughs> this is this is where I thrive. Right. Uncertainty right. and right. <laughs> complexities is what I'm born for. So right. wonderful. Um, uh, but necessarily, I feel responsible for my country. I think mm. uh, I I probably won't ever become the prime minister or a minister, but. I think there is something that I would be able to contribute mm. uh, for the larger good mm. or be able to influence people around me right. uh, for them to make contributions. And not just me, th- there are others like me as well who've, who come with strong commitment. It's a collective, I would say, um, as much as there's a force that's moving outside Nepal, there's also a good number of people that want to make things work. Um, uh, interestingly, we recently had elections mm-hmm. and we've got very young faces. I think this is, mm. um, uh, 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 I don't know when this was the, the last, but uh, this this elections round, we, we have several new faces in politics, a young party as well. Mm. Uh, people have voted in for young faces. Um, so increasingly, I think that's going to set precedence for politics to change because uh, um, n- they would have to kind of respond to the demands of the constituencies and the demand has been for bringing in fresh perspectives and fresh faces into politics. Right. Yeah, that's really encouraging, isn't it? That yeah. is. Yeah. You presumably didn't start out as a political scientist or a political economist? <laughs> no. I mean, I mean, it's not something that graduates often do. No. Is it? No. Um, well, I um, I love I love looking at uh, things. So I've I've always been a political person. Okay. And political in the sense, not party politics. Mm, no, no. But Small I, I un- yeah, mm. I understand politics. I understand people mm. uh, very mm. well and how people operate. Right. Um, so as I as I studied uh, and I was trained, uh, my professional training. Uh, was on public policy. Mm, okay. So uh, the fact that when when I was working on public policy issues, mm-hmm. um, I came to realize that uh, we, the notions around policy, having good policies but not being implemented, uh, all of these at the, at the heart of these were certain challenges. Right. And these challenges were around contestations in public policy. Mm-hmm. Right? right. And then when I started studying this contestation, I started identifying people behind these consultations. Right. Uh, they would mobilize in a way, mm. um, use um, uh, use power in certain uh, degree, and draw certain influence. And that was fascinating for me mm. to make that observation, mm. Mm. to look at any policy or policy reform um, as a contestation from a perspective of interest and mobilization of interest, mm. trying to see what incentives were driving this interest. So that got me to, to political economy more than mm. anything else. Mm. Um, I, I've not studied a course on political economy. Oh, you haven't? Oh, no. that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just picked up political economy from working on public policy. Oh, great. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say, you're a living example of getting Tibeta together, and it's been a delight having you here. The time has flown. Thank you so much. I really look forward to working further with you through whatever opportunities arise. 
And um, you are indeed most welcome in this country and you have made already a contribution to us. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you for having me here today. And thank you all for listening. I look forward very much to our next episode. Until then, goodbye.